you know, ask yourself exactly that question. Am I getting promoted? Am I getting raises because I'm actually improving my skills or is it because I, I have tenure and I, I have a knowledge uh, base uh, that, that's really valuable to the company? In today's episode, we have Hunter Meyer. Hunter is a engineering manager at Box and founder at Meyer Visions, a venture capital firm that invests early in founders building fast-growing technology companies. Hunter's career in programming did not start immediately. He graduated from a university with a degree in marketing, entered the workforce, but wasn't happy with his career. So eventually, he wanted to take computer science and become a programmer, but didn't want to spend the money to go back to school for another four years. So at the age of 22, he quit his job, learned Ruby, and went to coding boot camp, which propelled him to where he's at today. Welcome, Hunter. Thanks, Felix. Happy to be here. First of all, amazing story, and it really serves as an inspiration to other people that it's never too late to start another career. So tell us about this coding bootcamp experience. Yeah, so you had it right. I was, I went to school for marketing, and I was in the career force. You know, I ended up just selling things over the phone, and I wasn't very happy. Um, I was dabbling with tech on the side. My friends were making a bunch of money, having fun. I was spending money on suits, you know, and trying to impress in the professional world. And they're all wearing flip-flops and shorts, having a great time. Um, so like you said, I, I looked into going into university, didn't want to spend time and money um, to go get a bachelor's in computer science. So I started looking into these coding boot camps. I started looking online. I was using, um, I believe the first one was Codecademy to become familiar with just like syntax of Ruby and JavaScript started hacking it on my own. I found that I really enjoyed the process of building things and creating things. So yeah, in that moment, I decided to quit my job. I went home to uh, to Orlando, Florida. I was living in Colorado at the time. Went back to Orlando, spent about two months preparing, learning code. I did uh, Ruby Monk was another huge, valuable tool online that was very difficult. Um, and then I looked, I started looking at all these coding boot camps, and I can't name them all, but the one that I landed on was called Epicodus, which is out in Portland, Oregon. The big part of what drew me to them was one, they were very affordable, but most importantly, they were like 14 weeks long, which is a, a fairly long amount of time. And I wanted a program that was long and intense so that I didn't just learn, you know, the surface level, how to build a HTML website. I wanted to learn the full stack, Ruby, Rails. JavaScript, SQL. And so Epicodus was, was stood out to me. I applied, did a couple of interview questions, and yeah, I, it was um, probably one of the best career decisions I've ever made in my life. Yeah, Ruby was the first language that, that I learned too. And for others out there that are thinking about it or were in your shoes and not sure yet if it's a, a path that they want to pursue, how do you recommend they dip their toes in order? How do you recommend that they find out if it's actually a career switch that they want to make? That's a really deeply personal question. I think what would to dip your toes in would be to use one of those online tools. I think Free Code Camp is another one that's out there that's available. But definitely look at like Code Academy. I think just start getting the idea of what code looks like and then start working your way into seeing how how it how to build things, how to build simple apps. And then I really think I wouldn't want to advise someone just to, you know, take a leap of faith kind of like I did. It was pretty scary. Um, but get some familiarity with code, find a problem and solve it. Like for me, what really drove me into it, my first project 
was in the morning when I was in Colorado in the morning, I used to like to watch, you know, TV or something like that while I'm eating breakfast before work. But at the time I didn't have cable. So I only had the internet. So I used YouTube and YouTube to me was slow. I'd spend all my time searching for a video, clicking on it. And by that time my cereal got soggy. So I said, I want to build a simple app that is just like a playlist finder that auto plays YouTube videos. So I can type in funny videos. It'll start playing and then auto play next, which is now a feature on YouTube, but at the time they didn't have it. So I built a really simple JavaScript app that um, interacted with the YouTube API and solved my problem. And I think that was the catalyst to, to the career choice I made. So definitely I would start with get familiar with the code, see what it looks like. Uh, Ruby is a very human readable, friendly language. So I would, you know, I would recommend people look into that one or Python uh, is another good one as well. And then try to build a project, try to find a problem that you can automate. Maybe it's building a better timer widget for, for Mac or something like that before jumping into, you know, coding bootcamp, but do your due diligence to make sure it's worth uh, that you at least have some kind of interest in it. And you mentioned that during this process to look for a coding bootcamp, you had to interview to get into it. A lot of people might be thinking that, oh, you just pay your money and then you get accepted and then someone teaches you how to get a, a job in the field, but it's actually a vetting process that's involved. So talk to us a little bit more about uh, what that vetting process is like and how do you prepare for to get accepted into a coding bootcamp? That's a great question. I, I think it's very important to, if you're shopping coding boot camps, is to, I think, make sure there is an interview process, that it's not just take your money. Because, you know, this was several years ago, you know, a, a decade ago. Today, the landscape for coding boot camps is much, much wider. And there's a lot of competition, but there's also a, probably some code camps that aren't doing that great of job. Um, so I think it is important to make sure that there is some threshold to getting acceptance, so that not just, you know, turning into a certificate factory, pumping people in and out. Um, so I can speak to, to the interview process was pretty straightforward. Uh, it started initially with a phone call uh, to find out who I am, what my interests are, why I decided to look into Epicodus, sort of, you know, kind of a pre-interview. And then the actual technical interview was just simple questions like, what is, a, they were focused on Ruby. So it was, you know, what is a class? What is an object? Uh, can you define text-driven development? Uh, what is RSpec? Really basic things um, that sort of just tested vocabulary. There wasn't any algorithm questions. It was sort of just making sure that I was a student who was passionate and wanted to learn and had some experience writing some code. And it looks like after Epicodus experience, you graduated from that boot camp. Your first job was an internship. How hard was it to get that first job or that first internship after a boot camp? Thankfully, that internship started while I was at the coding bootcamp. Uh, it was with KBOO FM, which is a local radio station in Portland, Oregon. Big shout out to them. They're amazing. Um, so the, the coding bootcamp actually set up that internship where we redesigned their website and put a, a, a audio player on their website that stuck around as you navigate the website and continue to play KBOO FM. How are you about to land? How was that set up with the, the, the coding bootcamp was just like giving people or or uh, getting internships for the, the students. That's right. So the, the owner, Michael, he worked with like networked with local businesses in the area and in that Portland area to arrange internships, which turned into our final projects for the coding bootcamp. And so it was actually a really good, uh, way to, to have like an exit from this bootcamp was, you know, we were building hard projects that were our own and, you know, testing each other and, and learning how to work with others, doing some pair programming, but they were 
not real world problems, right? And so Michael went out into the to the community, found some businesses that needed some projects built, for, you know, from developers who are fairly or brand new to the to the field. And then he would create uh, like factions, little small teams within the, the coding bootcamp. So there's about 30 of us. I think we were on teams of about six or so. And we work on those projects, learn how to, you know, work as a team to project manage, to use GitHub. And then that final project, and along with other projects we completed in the bootcamp, was a package we were able to present at the end of our bootcamp when we were, you know, looking for jobs, uh, meeting with uh, local people in the field. We could show them something that we built and that we have real world experience, not just sort of homework that we, we've done in the bootcamp. Yeah, I think that's so critical. And I don't see this as often. So I think it's super interesting that this coding bootcamp, especially 10 years ago, was doing this where they were getting real work experience because, yes, your your final project at a coding bootcamp can be extensive, can be complex, but there's something about that validation from the real world that you've contributed code to an actual company that's a great stamp of approval or your, your next, quote-unquote, like real job. So let's talk about that, that next job when you were on your own now and you had to figure out how to get your, your own job yourself. Uh, what was that like? How was that process to, to getting the next job after the internship? That process was challenging, and I was sort of on my own. So after the boot camp, which was in Oregon, I moved back home to Florida. And the, the boot camp I was at the time was, was very small. I didn't really have a, quite a reach, an influence with employers outside of the Portland or area, uh, Portland, Oregon area. So I was home in Orlando. I really was tough. I was sending out resumes, working with recruiters. Um, I, I got a couple of offers, but the salary was just way too low. You know, it was less than what I was making in marketing and, and money is very important. You know, I want to have a, a good career. So believe it or not, my first job was uh, sort of like an internship. I was writing .NET code in C-sharp for a local business that was very small startup. Um, and so I had to learn .NET and C-sharp on the job, which which was really cool. It was scary. It was daunting because I had only familiarity in Rails and, and HTML and JavaScript. So going into .NET was, was a little scary. But ultimately, I, I did really well. And I found that you know, once you understand the basics of a language, it you can translate it to almost any other language relatively easily. Now... I started to get a little uneasy. I I remember confiding to my wife at the time, like I don't know, maybe I maybe I can't get a real job uh, in programming. Maybe I'm just not good enough. Maybe I should have went to school. And I was, you know, it was it was stressful. And I actually considered going back into marketing and sales. However, I found this one job that was out in Atlanta, Georgia, Listen Three Sixty, and I met I, I, I just you know shooting a, a resume over via LinkedIn, I believe. Got a call back from from the CTO. We spoke over the phone, um, and they were really interested in coding bootcamp graduates because they had traditionally, you know, they're a small company, but they traditionally hired computer science graduates. Bootcamps were fairly new and novel. They wanted to see what it was like, uh, what we're learning, and um, they decided to fly me out for an interview. And they, you know, they rolled out the red carpet. They flew me first class. They they had a car pick me up from the from the airport. And I got to this this office, and I, they threw me an interview, uh, right, like right away into a technical interview. Uh, they asked me some basic SQL, like how to do joins, wh where clauses, and the having clause, as well as group by clause, so pretty technical SQL questions. And then they abstracted it into active record questions, and it was it was very stressful because it was, you know, my first tech job, but I I felt like I did really well, and I ended up flying back home. A couple of days later, I got a call back, and they wanted to hire me. 
Um, but it did require me to relocate. So, um, uh, my wife and I talked it over and seemed like it was a good opportunity. Uh, the money was right. And yeah, so I relocated to Georgia and I was at that company for about seven years. Well, you did a lot of moving around in the very beginning of your, your uh, software engineering career. Um, and, you know, this, this job, I think, that you're talking about was one where you stayed for six years. And it sounds like a great opportunity. It sounds like a great start. But you do believe that it was one of your career setbacks to stay at this first job uh, for six years. Tell us more about why you felt like that was a setback and like maybe how costly was that decision? Yeah, I think it, it was a setback in the, in the regards to sort of my own confidence level. Uh, there was a, t there was times that I, I, you know, years on, I mean, four or five years into it, when I was looking to go to do something more, I wanted to get more experience. I started feeling like staying in one job too long, especially early in my career, was going to hamper my skills and my development. So I was rising up, you know, becoming a senior engineer. But I started questioning, am I a senior engineer at this company? Which again was, you know, medium scale, kind of small company. Am I a senior at this company? Because I know the business well, I know the employees, I get along with everybody and I write pretty good code. But you know, would I be able to go to a, another company and still be a senior? You know, what is that definition? What does that mean? So it was a little bit of fear of um, almost maybe like sort of an imposter syndrome sort of feeling that, you know, longer I stayed, the more I was going to hamper my career because, you know, I was going to avoid doing interviews. I was avoiding really getting the, the challenge of, of another career and testing my skills. So, yeah, I do believe it as much as that company boosted my development and I am who I am today. And I'm from the experience I got there, good friends. That I still talk to this day, learned really good code, got to build full stack applications that reach millions of users. Um, there, there, I do think there's a bit of risk of staying somewhere too long because you start becoming too culturally connected to that business. And it's not, you start losing that transferable skills that you can apply elsewhere. Yeah, it's like uh, when you are senior or you're getting these kind of promotions at the same company, you might just be getting better at doing the job at that current company. But are you actually being a better, well-rounded software engineer across different companies? I think that's important, especially when you're thinking about a long-term career. And I've heard the saying, too, where you might have six years of experience, but is it really six years of experience or six times one year of experience? And there's kind mm. of like a, a nuance there where maybe you're doing the same thing just over six years or are you actually growing? And it's hard to see that when you're in the same company. So when, if someone out there is at a company, maybe they're there for longer, for, for a while, for a few years, how, how do you know, how do you recognize, okay, maybe it's time to, to move on? I think it's really hard to see that. How do you recommend people look out for signs that it's time to move on? Again, very personal question. I think the signs come from inside. You know, ask yourself exactly that question. Am I getting promoted? Am I getting raises because I'm actually improving my skills? Or is it because I, I have tenure and I, I have a knowledge uh, base uh, that, that's really valuable to the company, uh, but less of my productivity or my development? So I think it's really just about evaluating yourself. I, you know, I had a friend of mine who said when he got out of boot camp, his mission was to work at three companies in five years. So he didn't even have to worry about checking that temperature uh, in each job. He just said, okay, year and a half, I'm time to move. 
time to move. And I've seen a lot of folks do that. Uh, so it really just comes down to what you're asking yourself, what your goals are. Um, do you want to make more money? Because you can stay put and keep making tons of money and you're going to be fine. If you are if you want to develop that muscle and becoming a more well-rounded, experienced engineer, then maybe you need to consider you know, getting either, if you're a medium-sized company or a larger company, maybe there's internal movement you can do. Um, but if it's a small company, a lot of times it's going to be looking out, out, outward uh, at other, other opportunities. Yeah, and now that you have experiences as an engineering manager and that um, you are an engineering manager, how do you view candidates that have moved around like this? I think there's a concern, too, where what's the right balance where you are moving because it advances your career, you're getting a, a, a step level promotion by changing companies, you're getting more money. So it all it's inc- you're incentivized to, to do this at a kind of a micro level, but over the span of your career – you're a hiring manager and you're seeing this, like, is there a point where you're like, this is kind of a red flag that you're jumping around too much? Yeah. I mean, career development is a chess game. It's not a, you know, it's, it's, there's infinite number of moves that you can make and each one has opportunity and risk associated with it. As a hiring manager, I look and I see folks who have moved around. My key uh, indicator is career progression. It's not necessarily that you stayed at a company from one year to the next, but if you're bouncing around every year and, and you're still at the you know, software engineer position, you haven't graduated to either senior or you know, any of the different levels or staff or you know, even further on to like an architect, I'm not seeing career progression. And that, that's more of a red flag than you bouncing around. And in fact, you know, seeing folks who have moved around I'm actually pretty interested in that because I want to understand why they moved around, what they're seeking for, uh, seeking out in a career. This gives me a lot of opportunity to learn from someone and potentially uh, provide them a, a place where they can do their best work. And they also bring with them a lot of diversity. You know, they've worked with other teams, they've worked with other problems, technology. Were they at a business-facing, uh, you know, employer, or were they at a, you know, a customer-facing uh, business? So I think there's a lot to to be reviewed there. The only red flag I would say. Uh, it, it's just career progression. And that's true as well for someone who stayed in a position for a while. So if I see you spent, like for myself, six or seven years at a company, um, but I don't see any kind of career progression, that's a bit of a red flag. If you just, you know, stuck at that one level and didn't really grow, it's so again, progression over uh, variation. Makes sense. Now let's move forward to what your day-to-day is like now as an engineering manager. I, I love how you focus and start your day off really focusing on the kind of personal life, family life. Tell us more about how you set that up before you begin your work day. Oh, I'd love to. So yeah, my, my, I have two wonderful kids. One's two years old and one just turned one. Uh, so my morning usually starts off with my wife and I waking them up, getting breakfast, and we like to sit down and have breakfast with each other. And, you know, have some chit chat, you know, my, obviously my one-year-old can't, can't talk. My two-year-old just has so much to say and it's just a lot of fun. So it really helps center me and prepare me for my day. And I also bring that, that emotional connection into the workplace as well. You know, I understand that we're working with people, right. And people come first. So building rapport, understanding that, you know, the people I work with have kids at home. Sometimes they're sick. Sometimes they need to, you know, drive them to daycare or pick them up or, uh, the babysitter's out or something like that. There's, you know, life exists outside of work. And I think experiencing and embracing and, and valuing your home life um, g- gives a good opportunity for you to help other people at work as well. 
Yeah, and the, this concept of you know work-life balance lately has become I, I've seen it become as important, maybe more important than compensation these days. As someone that is, let's say, an individual contributor that's not an engineering manager, that's just a software engineer, how do you recommend that they protect that that balance and that they have the time, like you're talking about, to to make sure that you put your personal life, your family life, that that's just as important as your work life. How do you make sure that that is protected? My key advice to someone like that would be to, to tell your manager, to, to be vocal about it. Uh, one of the candidates we recently hired during the interview, you know, told me straight up, like, here's the situation. I might have to take a couple of days off here and there. Um, you know, my kids in and out of daycare and sometimes daycare closes because of COVID. So I need to be there. So I think being vocal about it is, is step one, because what you'll find is more than not, people want to help other people, even in, especially in the workforce, in the workplace. Right. Uh, so communicate, tell me what the issue is, tell me, or not even an issue, just tell me the situation and we'll work around it. We're working from home today. We live in, a, we work in an international, multinational, multi-state, multi-time zone employer. So we have to be resilient to the changes in the, the dynamics of, of home life. So I think just step one really is to just be vocal about it. And, and when it comes to, you know, home life, it really, it, it depends on the individual. You know, some people that have kids are going to want to you know, spend more time with their children. Or if you're, you know, an individual, maybe you're, you're working on some side projects or something like that. But it's important to compartmentalize your work and, and make sure you have an activity outside of work that gives you, you know, value, that gives you challenge, that gives you excitement and pleasure so that you're not just consumed with work. Yeah, and you know, speaking of being consumed with work, I think that what I sometimes see in companies is this 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 um, this hero culture where someone's willing to just step up and like grind it out, put in way more hours than is expected, way more hours than others to kind of get things done. And hearing hearing someone say that, it sounds like, okay, that's great. You have a great you know addition to the team, but then it could also now feel like there's like this uh, pressure for the rest of the team to maybe I need to kind of start stepping up more and eke more out of my personal time and to put more time into work. Um, do, have you seen this in your career? And like, are there ways in, 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 from the management side to uh, address this? A, a, do you think it's a concern? And, and B, like, how would you address something like that? When that happens, I think it's on us as managers and, and leaders on the team as well to immediately call that out and stamp it out. So if we're in a meeting and this has happened before where people mention like, oh yeah, I stayed up late, we say no. Don't do that. Do it within the hours because one, it's not healthy for you, but two, it sets bad examples for the other employees. That's not the type of culture we want. So I think it's important and imperative for managers and other leadership to stamp it out when they see it. You know, right there on the spot. I, I've done it in group meetings saying that that's not, that's not good. That's not healthy. It's not good for the uh, other engineers who are, who are sort of learning the culture. I love that. That that's super rare. I've never hear or see that, and so I appreciate that that you're doing something like that. Um, now, speaking of prioritizing and spending your time correctly, you start your day by time boxing. So, first of all, what is time boxing, and how do you use it? Yeah, time boxing. I, I use school calendar, and I just draw boxes or uh, sort of events that are hour long or two hour long, where I dedicate that span of time to some tasks. Some of that might be responding to email, catching up on Slack. Um, maybe as an you know, engineer, when I used to, way back in the day, I guess, uh, what I used to time box was looking at errors. So I'd go and see what were the errors from the night before. You know, if we had like some kind of like rescue logging or some kind of uh, tool, 
I'd go and look at the errors and see, you know, was there a spike? Is this, you know, within range and start clearing things out. And then I would as well look at what I call the fast lane. So these would be like small tickets that are maybe some bugs or questions, you know, very, very small ones that don't necessarily need to get prioritized into, into the sprint, but just need to be addressed because they're low hanging fruit, so to speak. Um, so I'd go after that kind of fast lane before I would get into, you know, meetings or head down focus time for sprint activities and things like that. Yeah. And because there's always more to do than there's time to do it. How do you learn? How did you learn to know what to say yes to and what to say no to? That's a, that's a very difficult skill that, that needs refinement. Uh, and I even fall on it. You know, it's really about understanding priorities and, that can be set uh, from from leadership. They can be set and agreed upon by the team. You know, for example, when if you're an on-call engineer that is working, you know, bugs or things like that that are on call uh, during the day. You know, your focus is the bug backlog, for example. So if things come in outside, there's questions. It's really just to say, I think there's a communication that we can develop. There's a bit of a template for it. It's it's like I have this current priority. If you're asking me to take my attention off that to go into this. But these are, this is the consequence. Is that what you want? And so if a leader comes to you and say, Hey, can you look at this project? You say, Hey, I'm you know on, on the bug priorities right now. If you'd like me to stop and look at what you're asking me for, I won't be able to address this other prioritized items. Is that what you'd like me to do? And usually when you get that kind of pushback, people have forced the, the requester to think, is what I'm asking for that important? Is it that urgent? And, um, I also have a matrix I use for that too when it comes to sort of difficult prioritizations where you have things that are very important, uh, e almost equally. How do you decide which one to pick on? And there's a, there's a couple of different processes. One of the prioritization matrix is is about uh, urgency and importance. Importance. So the, you know if it's important and urgent, do it right now. If it's important but it's not so urgent, we can delegate or or schedule. If it's uh, you know not important and not urgent. And we shouldn't do it. Yeah, and so I want to move on to now your experience uh, working at a, a team like a company like Box, who where your team is is fully remote, and I think Box has always been supportive of remote uh, work. Uh, I think a concern that comes up is when an engineer is deciding about whether they want a remote job or a job in the office. Maybe the team is half in the office and they are more remote. I think the concern is about career progression that you might be losing out on something because you're not seeing the people day to day as a, 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 like in relation to advancing your career that you're not in front of people's face every day that somehow it, it impacts your career. Do you, is this true? Do you find that's true? Not true? What were your thoughts on that? I, I think it could be true. Um, I think it's important for, for leadership to set a culture in which that we're supportive and making sure that that is not a bias that we use when it comes to performance management or any kind of talent review is that, the fact that you don't see them every day. So if, for example, if you're a manager that's in the office and you see some of your peers daily, but your remote employees, uh, you don't, you know, only see over the camera for scheduled meetings that you make sure that that isn't a bias that's influencing how you reflect upon their, uh, you know, key objectives or key performance indicators. Now from a, from a engineer's perspective, for me, I never saw it as a career hindrance, more of just, it kind of detracts from the fun of work. Uh, when I when I was in person, I 
really enjoyed, you know, chit-chatting with folks on the way to the to the break room or going to lunch together. You build a camaraderie. You get an opportunity to talk about things unscheduled. So like freeform dialogue, the pop in, they call it, where you just kind of pop in and ask a question and walk away. And I think time to question resolution and uh, is much, much quicker in a face-to-face environment. When you're in remote, what becomes challenging is almost every conversation has to be scheduled. They're not that impromptu pop in. I can't catch you on the way to the break room. I can't go to lunch with you and pick your brain. Um, so I don't, but, so I think that's more about just, I might not have as fun, much fun, uh, cause I don't get to see, you know, my friends, my colleagues less as a career hindrance. I don't, I, it'd be tough for me to see that as a career hindrance. Cause at the end of the day, we have objective measurables that you're going to be evaluated on. And that doesn't have any, it's irrespective of whether you're in person or remote. That makes sense. So speaking of getting promoted, one advice that you give when people ask you about promotions and how to get promoted is to first know what the company's values are and then align yourself to them and take them those values word for word. So tell us more about what that means. Like, can you give us an example of like a, a company value that at box and like how someone might align themselves to it? Yeah, that's a great question. So when you start thinking about a promotion, one thing I'd like to, to advise is try to answer the question of how am I already living out or acting out in the way of that next position? So say you're a software engineer, you're looking at a senior position, try to explain how you're already doing the responsibilities or leadership mindsets of someone who is a senior engineer. And then when you come to phrasing and the wording you use, incorporate your key company values. And I, I like to anchor on company values because if someone maybe disagrees with you, they're actually disagreeing with the company values and less of your argument. So it's kind of a interesting rhetorical device to use um, is to just incorporate those company values. So one of them was at Box is being an owner. And what that means is, you know, we're a large organization, we have a lot of problems, and we can't just rely on there being a team that solves everything. Um, and so if you see a problem, take ownership of it, it's your company, it's your product, it's your business, take it on and solve it. And then you can showcase that later on. Say, for example, there's, you have some kind of tool that always has an error when you post a link to it on Slack or something like that. And this is just a bit of an annoyance. Um, and, and, but if you go and actually solve that problem, you, you demonstrate that being an owner. And so maybe what you solve this, maybe then generate new money. Um, it's really just kind of a, uh, a nuance or a nuisance that you kind of patched. But when you phrase it as I acted out the being an owner value by fixing this ongoing issue that people complain about, you have a much better job of, uh, and that, that's what leadership wants to see. Right. Then the, the details aren't as important as, oh, they're acting out these values. Oh, yeah, they're in. I like that, that you're almost like using the values like a, like a constitution that you're pointing back to and saying, hey, I am upholding like the most kind of sacred thing that this company cares about. So it gives you a lot of kind of, uh, I don't know, ammunition, I guess, to 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 get to uh, to to you know, vie for a promotion. Uh, when you think about the company values and how you align with them. Uh, do you recommend engineers focus more on leaning more into things that they're already strong in, like take that even further, or should they focus more on, on the weaknesses and getting those up to par? Like, what do you think is more important? Ooh, that's a tough one. I think they're equally as important. Um, 
you know, becoming a subject matter expert and refining your skills is, is tremendously important and it will be very valuable for you in a career, especially when you, if you were to sort of want to aspire into that architect position. I mean, these are people with expert knowledge in, in key technologies and areas. And, but then at the same time, you know, identifying those areas of opportunities where you can develop is as important as well. Because you know, a lot, a lot of times those are soft skills as well as what I find. So I actually think you can, you can achieve both at the same time. I don't think they're in conflict with one another. I think you can work on, for example, communication and, and conflict resolution a little bit better while also, you know, becoming the expert in, you know, React or SQL. Makes sense. And once, you, once you're progress, progressing your career, you're getting these promotions and you're hitting a point now where you're a senior engineer and then you have this, this like notorious split, right, where you go down the technical route or go down the management route, staff engineer or go into engineering management. Uh, you chose the engineering management uh, role and tell us more about like what are some of the biggest myths or misconceptions that you had about engineering management before you got into it? And like, what have you learned since? Yeah, a, a myth, I think, for me was that you would, you start losing technical skills. And, and maybe that's not so much as a myth, but uh, that's, that scared me when I went into, into management was that I wasn't going to be touching code every day. I wasn't gonna be looking at pull requests and that potentially I'd be just focused on uh, you know, performance and spreadsheets and budgets and things like that. I found that to be sort of a, a, a myth that I challenged head on. Um, I don't, I don't actually think that that's a written rule. I think some folks just kind of gravitate away from tech as they stay on the management route. Uh, I think it's up to the individual to, to, to challenge. And I did. So I, I still, I still write code every day. Um, on my side projects, I still review pull requests with my, with my team. Uh, and individually, and as well as engineering manager, I don't just rely on the people. I'm actually own the technical roadmap, which is another key thing. So a lot of companies have sort of a split. You have your product roadmap and then your technical roadmap. Your product roadmap's about developing new features, new product, you know, things like that that we're pretty familiar with. But your technical roadmap is things like upgrading versions of React or uh, adding more monitoring and observability, improving performance on page load, you know, auditing your, your, your tech to see if, uh, you know, you're reaching the, the, you know, if you have security holes or if you have, you know, performance bottlenecks and that tech backlog is often ones that I've heard being ones that get neglected, right? They get much more invested in, you know, stakeholders want to invest in new product. They don't really care so much about that technical debt. They let, you know, we'll figure that out kind of what it does. So I think it's key to engineering managers is to stay close to the tech, understand the problems you're, engineers are having, maybe there's a clunky release process, or maybe there's an organizational problem that needs to be addressed from like a management level. So EMs need to stay close to tech and own that roadmap. And again, just like I said before about incorporating those core values, those company values into your promotion packet, it's also true from an engineering manager to own that roadmap and to position the, the changes or big initiatives by leveraging those, those, those those company values. So if you want to be 10x, right, you want to move fast and break things, well, you're going to need a technical platform that can allow you to, to iterate and experiment quickly. Product wants to release new features rapidly. Okay, well, we need a release pipeline that's not, you know, clunky. We need a, a test suite that's not slow and takes hours to build. We need investment in these core technical areas in order to achieve, you know, the vision that the company wants to see.
Yeah, it sounds like there's a lot, a ton of currency in just looking back at the company values and then using that as the evidence or the arguments to 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 reflect what you want, the kind of changes that you want to make. Um, it, it, the last question here about engineering management is that for a software engineer that again is at the senior level, they are considering the path of going more technical or going to management. What would you say is the most important question that they need to answer for themselves? to make that decision? I believe it's asking yourself, are you, are you, do you want to go into EM because software development has gotten too hard? As you grow in your career, you're going to face, especially when you, you know, start going into that senior staff level, the problems and ownership you'll have will be much harder and much broader. So the impacts you will make will affect the large, you know, the company you have to have, uh, people have, you have a lot of responsibility. People are going to rely on you to have, well thought out answers and it's very, very difficult. It's a hard job. And I think sometimes people consider the management track as a way to you know, escape from those harder problems that maybe they'll go into the people side. And I think it's important to answer that question because if that's the case, you can't r run into you know, people leadership by running away from hard coding problems because you're just not gonna do your, your, your people well. You're not gonna do well by them. I love that. Thank you so much, Hunter Meyer, engineering manager at Box, founder of Meyer Ventures. And that's all the time we have this week. Thank you so much for being here, Hunter. You're welcome. Thank you for having me, Felix. It's great talking with you. Awesome. So come out, hang out with us next time on Culture of Code. Again, I'm Felix Hill. Take care.